Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians, oh, sorry, 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And our title for today's sermon is Called to Shepherd. Called to Shepherd. This is the Lord's word. <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must, ma he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless us all in the reading of his word. Good morning, everyone. I hope you guys are all awake. I hope you guys had a good night's sleep last night and today, this morning, as we worship the Lord. Uh, may this time be sweet to you. May this time be a time of joy for you. May this time of reading God's word, confessing our sins, being forgiven of his sins, hearing the word being preached, may it be a balm to your soul. God knows who you are. God knows and understands everything that is going on in your heart, the turmoil. God knows your hopes and your dreams. And God has revealed to each one of you, according to his wisdom, what it is that he wants you to learn about his love and grace for you. Our duty before him is simply to listen to his voice, to listen to what he wants to teach me about who he is. It's difficult for us to learn everything all at once. And in fact, if you try to learn all about Christianity and all about God all at once, you'll wind up learning nothing. Our duty before him 
is as he slowly reveals his will to us, is for us to deliberately, conscientiously, slowly obey him. And as we do so, and as we keep in step with the Spirit, God is wonderful to unveil to us his purpose in our lives. And so that is why we're here today. We're here today to, to listen to what God has for us as individuals. But we're also here to listen to what God has to speak to us together as a family, as a church. And as we try to be patient with ourselves of how God is changing us, we need to be patient with one another of how God is forming and moving us as well. Just as in your individual lives, you'll have storms, you'll have your winters, but you'll have your springs and summers. So it is with us, us as a church, as we discern God's will, we know that he will be faithful. You see, when we see the mistakes in our church, when we see the sins in our church, when we see the difficulties in our church, those are not a sign of the fact, sign that God has withdrawn his grace. It's actually a sign that we are actually living in God's grace. It is our imperfections, our sinfulness, that is a sign to us that we are in step with God's spirit. It does not negate his faithfulness, not negate his holiness, not negate his grace to us, but it's a confirmation that we live by grace alone. And so we as a church, we as individuals, must look to the cross and to see what he is doing. In our third year as a church plant together, we are on the steps of hopefully becoming particularized. Well, that's PCA jargon or Presbyterian Church in American jargon, of meaning that we want to become a fully functioning church with a session. A session is simply made up of the ruling elders and the teaching elders together. And together they're in charge of shepherding the church, the, the local church or our church here. And the teaching elders and the ruling elders together each simply have one vote. And together they decide, how do we shepherd these people? How do we help this church to grow in such a way that magnifies the Lord? How are we in tune with our people and, and what they're thinking and what their needs are? How do we sort of look at their needs and say, we need to help them here and, and, and so that we can, they can see God's grace? And when do we see those needs and say, you know what, those needs are not helpful needs. We need to help them to see that Jesus is indeed all that they need. But in order for our church to take this next step, we have to be conscious that whatever leaders that we decide as a church to call to lead this group, they will be flawed men. <coughs> they will be men who make lots of errors. They will be men who will make mistakes. But the question for us as a church is when we see those things happen, 
Do we wag our little finger? Do we sigh a sigh of disappointment? Or do we say unto the Lord, this is what we expected. We need more of your grace, Lord. We need more of your presence, Lord. We need more of your power. We need to pray even more fervently and graciously for our church. We need to grow up. We need to become a church of maturity. Like it says in James, whatever the winds may blow us, when there's cutting false teaching out there, we'll be able to stand and stand firm. Now, in our Presbyterian circles, we have qualifications of what it means to be called to be a shepherd. And in November, we will have a special members meeting where we will actually nominate people, men, who will go through some training. And then by God's grace, we will become a particular church, not a church run by me, but a church run by you. Now, for most of us, we're not used to this whole process. We've never gone through it. Being here in Georgia for the last, since 2005, 14 years, when I would talk to my colleagues who are running sort of English ministries in Korean churches, or people in inner varsity or in, in other religious organizations, and I would ask them, how do you, how do you figure out leadership? And they say very simply, um, we have people simply volunteer. I go, is that it? Yeah, they just volunteer. If they have desire to do it, then we'll put them in leadership position. Or they'll say something, something that will, they, they, they fill out an application. And they fill out an application of sort of why they want to be a leader in this organization. And after they fill out the application, you know, we consider whether there should be a leader or not. I guess, well, who makes that decision? Well, it's the staff worker or it's the pastor. But oftentimes when we think about leadership in the church, we think about the fact that someone has to sort of step up. A single person has to say, I want to become a leader in this organization. And Everyone else sort of simply just sits back and simply says, okay, I guess that's just what we have. This person who has the energy and animus to, to lead, we'll, we'll just let them go through. But if we think about this deeply, and we think about this scripturally, we start to see that the people who are leaders throughout God's kingdom we're not necessarily the ones who had all the energy and desire to lead. The people in Scripture 
who are called to lead God's people, many of them do it reluctantly. Not with a desire to be a bishop, a pastor, CEO of a company. We go back simply to the day of Moses. You did not see Moses say, God say, hey, we need someone to, to go to Egypt to let my people go. And Moses didn't come up and say, hey, I want to do it. Here's my application. Moses was like, hey, man, that, that's, that's all me. I'll go down there. I'll take him down. Moses didn't do that. Moses was reluctant that God called him. And even if God called him, Moses was still like, I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm a nervous wreck. I can't go and say anything. I'll, I'll do what you tell me because I saw a burning bush. I got to go. But, but, but I, I, can't, I don't want to talk. And God provides him with Aaron to walk beside him. And Moses goes and leads. When we look at simply the 12 disciples, most of them are no-name people. Peter is probably the only one that we see as, as that sort of go-getter who's out there, who, who throws himself in the, in, in the water when Jesus says, come out and walk on the water. But everyone else, they're in the background. They were fishermen. They were not people of, of well repute within the culture. They were simple people that God called. And it's this understanding that we have to have when we consider the type of people, the type of men that we want to lead this church, to serve this church. We're not looking for the CEO type. We're not looking for the one who has the best entrepreneurial skills. We're not looking for someone who can, who can uh, sort of on a dime get everyone together and on a dime make sure that X, Y, and Z happens. If they have those qualities as well, that's great. but they're not what's requisite for someone to lead and to serve the church. When I was in university, no, sorry, let me, go, let me go a little bit past that. When I was a staff worker within university at a, a Swarthmore College, and we were switching leadership. And I was racking my brains of how can I teach these students to understand biblically what does leadership look like? And how we can switch the leadership in such a way that what we see is we see a bit of the model of what we see in Scripture. And so we did something very different from what other universities did. The first thing I did as a staff worker is with our um, leadership team, they, we were tasked with forming a senior selection committee. And we had a, a list of things of what it meant to be on the senior selection committee. And most of it is, is, is something like this. For three years, you had to be faithful to Swarthmore Christian Fellowship. 
For three years, you have to show growth and maturity in your faith. And so we racked our brains for about two or three weeks just picking the selections selection committee. You can understand when you have too many people who want to talk, it takes forever to get anything done. And that's what Swarthmore students were like. But finally, we get the selection committee together. Sometimes it was just two other people and me. Sometimes it was three. Sometimes it didn't matter. Just the faithful men and women. There was no application process. They knew they had to serve. They had no choice. You're part of this body. You're part of that fellowship. You have, to, you have to serve in that capacity. And of course, they all gladly did because they loved the fellowship. So you had these three seniors and myself as a staff worker, and we, and we were tasked with finding a new leadership. Do we ask for applications? No. What good does applications do us? What we did was very simple. Amongst the 60 people in our fellowship, the four of us would simply pray, knowing the people in the fellowship, knowing how they have served. We would come together with a list of six people just amongst ourselves. And then we would start talking to people. What's their character like? Do you think they would be a good servant? And after we did that due diligence, each one of us would go sit with each of those people and say, would you consider faithfully serving our fellowship? And let me tell you, most of them said no. And let me tell you, there were people who were expecting to be asked, who were disappointed that we didn't ask them. But our charge is very simple. Find faithful men and women who embody the characters that we have here in 1 Timothy and to hand this fellowship over to them. Not by a voting process of the masses, but but what Scripture teaches us about what a shepherd and a shepherdess should look like. the best leaders I ever had in any college fellowship were those who thought they couldn't lead and serve. But those who learned to lead and serve out of God's strength and not theirs. It's incumbent upon us if, if we did that, in, I did that in a, in a little fellowship with our bylaws are all over the place and there are a lot of questionable things that the, the university will say, you know, you're, this isn't the right way to handle a, a, a club organization. But we, when we went through that mess, we had to explain ourselves a lot. But that was okay. But we are granted the privilege here as a church, as being part of the Presbyterian Church in America, to have guidelines already set up for us that we believe come from Scripture itself.
And we as people, as men and as women, as we consider those men who, who we believe should be called to lead this church, have to prayerfully consider what does it look like for someone to be a shepherd of this church? So don't just look for people, the usual suspects. Look for those people who serve well in the background. Look for those people who are faithful to God and faithful to the church, Christ's covenant, Presbyterian church itself. Now, there are some caveats to this that we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 6. He says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. One of the one of the things that scripture is very careful about in choosing leaders is that they need to be someone who's been seasoned through the fires of faith. They can't be someone who is easily discouraged, who when they see the presence of Satan in the midst of the church want to run away. But there are someone who seizes the whole kingdom and how God's kingdom works. The fact that the battle is always in front of us. And as someone who can prayerfully and dutifully navigate those things well without taking anything personally, but in a way that honors God and honors the people around us. Many of us grew up in Asian American church contexts, and you remember that youth pastor who came into your church, right? That 22-year-old kid who thought they knew everything, right? And they come, and they're full of energy, and they're like, you know what? I'm going to light this city on fire. We're going to have this revival, and our ministry is going to grow, and we're going to take on this world for the Lord. And what happens? Well, in the beginning, the energy works. People come. People get excited. But then, one sign of discouragement. One sign, perhaps, of a student leader saying, um, you know, I can't come out this Saturday night to help out with the retreat because I have such and such a commitment with my family. Just everything blows up. That's a sign of someone who has recently come to know Christ, who somehow has been put in, in a place of leadership, who can't handle the, the understanding that in a church setting with a bunch of volunteers, with a bunch of people who are, who, who are trying to call and draw into the purposes of God, that it's going to be nearly impossible to get 100% commitment from 100% of the people 100% of the time. And then when they see 
difficulties because of a person and troubles they're going through. Instead of seeing them as, a, as part of the ministry, it's simply an obstacle through their own ego in many ways. They can't be a recent convert because that's what we do. When you first come to know Jesus, and this is all of us, Jesus is very, very um, kind, gentle, even overabundant in their grace to new believers. Do you remember when you first came to know Jesus? Everything was rosy. <laughs> Everything was wonderful. You would pray, and for some reason, God would answer every single one of your prayers. You would read scripture, and for some reason, every single passage spoke to your life. You would have conversations with Jesus, and for some reason, every conversation was wonderful. God does that. God gives you that innocence. God sort of shields you to the battles that are about you. But as you grow in your faith, there's two things you can do. One, you can grow cynical of your faith and say, I guess happiness in Jesus doesn't really last. I guess I'll just be a miserable Christian. Or second, you could grow up to be a person and say, this world really is hard. But God really is in our midst. And no matter how my heart feels towards God at this particular moment, at this particular time, no matter if he answers a prayer according to my desires, my Jesus is there. And it's this type of person, this maturity that is needed to lead this group. Someone who is steadfast, even keeled in their faith. The second thing that's interesting here is in verse 7. He must be well thought, out, thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Whoever becomes an elder in this church must have a reputation that is as good in the church as it is outside of the church. Whoever becomes a leader in this church, you represent this church now. When people are trying to figure out what is this church, who are these church, you are that person becomes the spokesperson of that church. Whether, whether they are very uh, speak well-spoken, or whether they're like Moses and need someone to help them. But they're the ones who represent the church. Now, we who grew up in Asian churches, we unfortunately have more of a negative experience than a positive experience. I remember many times um, when I was in college, and I came, that's when I really came to know the Lord. And I'd go back to my home church, and these elders were there, and I would... I would talk with them and speak with them. And I remember being so disappointed because every time I'd come back and I wanted to talk about sort of uh, spiritual things, all they would ask me is, how's school? How's your grades? Do you have a girlfriend? 
And after a while, I was like, what is this? <laughs> what is this? And then you hear about friends whose parents, whose fathers or elders or deacons in the church, and they come up to me and they come up to you and go, yeah, I don't know why my father's an elder. When he's at home, all he does is, I don't know, watch Korean videos. Yeah, I don't know why my father is an elder. Because the, the neighbors around him, they just, they just see him as a nuisance because he never mows the lawn. And it's okay, brothers and sisters, to grieve of when things disappoint. But again, it's also a sign of what? That the church is not based upon these perfect men. The church is based upon God's grace. But we must do our due diligence that when we look for men, we're looking for men who also have good reputations outside of this church. So that when we meet someone says, hey, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, I know so-and-so. Yeah, we work together, blah, blah, blah. That the reputation is good. Yeah, he's kind. He helps. He's, he's, he's stern, but he's fair. And he's generous. At the times that we need generosity. But the man needs to have the, the, the uh, continuity between the church self, the family self, and the worldly self. These are the type of people that we want to be, but these are the type of men that we want to shepherd the church that is Christ's covenant. Lastly, if we go through verse 2 and through verse 4, um, sorry, let's just do verse 2 through verse 3, um, we see a lot of character issues that come out. An overseer must be above reproach. That does not mean he's sinless. It just means that he is someone who seeks to right his wrongs quickly. Someone who seeks to make peace quickly. Someone who does not allow grudges to linger. But someone who is humble enough to admit wrong for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church as well. must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Asian people, yes, you out there, we are passive-aggressive by nature. And I'm one of those passive-aggressive guys as well, just ask my wife. But in men in particular, 
and we know who we are. But we don't deal with our anger well. There are times we just explode and no one knows what is going on. Fits of anger, fits of rage. Impatience with other people. This character is about a person who knows themselves well, knows their idols well, that before it turns into anger, it turns to repentance. Because what is anger if it's a rage? It's just not getting your idols. It's not getting what you want. That's all it is. To put it very simply. But a man who's able to delve deeply in their heart and confess of the built-in anxiety, <coughs> hatred, self-loathing, and confess those well, will not fall into the trap of fits of rage and anger against other people. You must not be a lover of money. You must not be a drunkard. Now, that's interesting in this society today. I want this in every society, right? But they cannot be someone who is seeking to make a profit simply to make a profit. They must be someone who handles and manages their money well. Someone who manages their money in such a way that they're not looked at as stingy, they're not looked at as frivolous, but they're looked at as someone who can use their money to help other people. They're not a drunkard. Um, I don't know what it is about the PCA, but in the PCA, everyone loves to drink. I mean, everyone loves to drink. I, I heard at the women's retreat, the speaker was talking about drinking as well. You know, everyone, everyone loves to drink. That's okay. I'm not going to say no to that. Uh, in fact, I remember when we were at KFPC and I heard about a lot of things that went on in our church. I just said, I just don't want to know. I just don't want to know. But you can't turn to alcohol every time you want to relax. You can't turn to alcohol every time things get too hard. The man needs to be self-controlled over what they have. And finally, family. You know, I remember in college, um, and even to this day, I always wanted to have a role model. What does a good Asian American family who loves Jesus look like? Now, I can't, I'm, I'm 48 years old, so there aren't many people older than me who are Asian American here in the US, and let alone people who are Christians, and let alone Christians who have good sort of family dynamics, even a second gen. And I remember going, I don't have anything to, to look for. 
I don't know what a good family looks like. I know what a lot of bad families look like. I know what immigrant families look like and what an immigrant generation, a second generation, all that messiness looks like. But I don't know what a Christian family really looks like. And even to this day, you know, I feel like my wife and I, we're just, we're just trying to, make, we're just making up as we go. There's still no one older than me who I look at and go, oh man, here's a six-year-old people and I see their adult children. Like, how did you do it? There's no one I want to run to and go, how, how, tell me, how did you raise your kids? And I say that because when you look at this and you say, he must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. These are all good things. The family must be ordered well. The children do need to be submissive. In, the, in other words, the tail cannot be wagging the doll, the, the, the dog. Family is not based around children, no matter how much this world tells you that. And you've seen families like that. I've seen families like that. The family is circled around God. And so the children have to submit to God just as much as the parent. God does not submit to the children. The parents do not submit to the children. And so we need to find a family, a father who's able to be in that general direction of wanting their families and their kids to submit to God. But the caveat is this, again, there needs to be a, a lot of mercy because we don't have role models yet for that. We just don't. I always envied when I was in seminary my white friends. And they would talk about, yes, we're a fourth generation Christians. We've been here in the U.S. for this many years. My dad was a Presbyterian pastor. My great-great-grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor. My great-grandfather was an elder. My grandfather was a pastor. And we had church together every Sunday, generations. And we learned about God together. And yeah, we went through, through things. But just generation after generation, we learned about serving the Lord. And even the way they talked about their experiences, you heard not simply their experiences, but the richness of their history through it, of following the Lord. Our experience is a little bit different. It's okay. We're not here to compare our experiences with what other cultural experiences have. We're here to look at our experiences within our own with, with what God has given us here. And so when you look at the men who are married, look at the men who, who do have children, don't judge them by how far they have gone. Look at them of how much are they working towards honoring God with the family that they have. Brothers and sisters, I know this is a lot to hear, to understand. 
read this passage over and over again as you pray and consider. But as I said in the beginning of this message, it is a time for us to grow up, to mature as men and women, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Growth is about us diving deeper in our faith, reaching out to more people with grace. Maturity happens when no matter what Satan throws at us, no matter how difficult fellowship gets, that we say to one another, this is a confirmation of God's presence in our life. It does not mean that God has withdrawn his mercies. And as we pray to God to make this church into a mature church. We expect challenges. We expect difficulties. But we also know that we will reap the joys, the growth, the maturity, the love, the stability that God promises his people. So, brothers and sisters, Pray fervently for your church. Pray fervently for the future of this church. Pray fervently that God may raise up faithful men to serve you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. There is no one like you. We thank you, Lord, for our church and the blessing it is. Help us to continue to grow in grace towards you and to make this church into a city on a hill, Lord, that all people may see the presence of God in our midst and be drawn to your love and to your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.